0: And welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Brad Kloza. I'm the program director of the IEEE Future Networks Initiative. Uh, if you're not familiar with IEEE, we are the world's largest technical professional organization dedicated to advancing technology for the benefit of humanity. Before we begin, I'd like to explain the format of this live event on LinkedIn. Uh, our panelists will speak for about 30 minutes. Uh, after that, we'll then select some questions from the uh, comment section in the LinkedIn uh, chat uh, feature. So uh, please feel free to submit any questions you might have for our speakers in that uh, comments field, and and we'll go through them and ask as many as we can. Uh, But now we can begin. Uh, This is the third in a four-part series for LinkedIn Live called 5G Demystified. It's a special collaboration between IEEE Future Networks and IEEE educational activities. Uh, the first two sessions are available to view on demand, and I believe in the description of this event you should find links to those. Uh, today's episode is called Health and Safety of 5G. Uh, from a public perception standpoint, 5G technology can't seem to catch a break. Various internet theories have tied it to cancer, then COVID-19 virus, and then the US Federal Aviation Administration claimed it could endanger airplanes, landing, in lows of visibility. Uh, So, In an era of increased propaganda and misinformation, how are citizens and non-technical policymakers supposed to make any sense of any individual claim? In this IEEE panel discussion, experts will discuss the science and standards of human health effects from electromagnetic radio waves and 5G communications. Uh, this time, I'd like to hand it over to David Witkowski, who will lead us us through the panel discussion. Uh, David is founder and CEO of Oku Solutions, a professional services company that works at the intersection between local government and the telecommunications industry. David is an IEEE senior member and a member of the IEEE Electric Magnetic Compatibility Society, a life member of the IEEE Microwave Theory and Techniques Society, and is co-chair of the Deployment Working Group for IEEE Future Networks. Thank you, David. Please take it away. Thank you,
1: Brad. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Welcome to everyone who's in the audience. Uh, I think this is a really interesting discussion, certainly because this is one of the, uh, obviously, the, probably the biggest thing that I deal with in the course of the work that I do, um, working with local governments, working with community groups, working with the industry to try to bring some uh, rationality and um, perspective into this uh, often discussed topic. Anybody who's been on uh, social media or you know, had conversations with uh, neighbors in your community probably has heard from somebody who has concerns about um, 5G or, or other wireless technologies. And so this is a very often talked about topic and it's, I think it's also a, um, often misunderstood topic. So I'm really happy to have such an August panel of experts with us today. Um, these are the people who contribute to the science uh, behind this topic And so the opportunity to hear from them today is is really um, unique and we're looking forward to doing this so uh, in no particular order i'm going to ask the panelists to introduce themselves um, and uh, just because uh, this happens to be the way it shows on my list i'm going to start with uh, brad roth Uh, brad please uh, give the audience an introduction to yourself
2: hi i'm uh, brad roth i went to uh, vanderbilt university to get my phd in physics so i'm a physicist Uh, Then I worked at the National Institutes of Health for seven years, really applying physics to medicine and biology. I've worked measuring uh, magnetic fields produced by nerves. I've worked on transcranial magnetic stimulation of the brain and on pacemakers and defibrillators for the heart. Um, All these things tend to be at somewhat lower frequencies than we're going to be talking about today, but there's still a lot of common uh, aspects that come into play in how electric and magnetic fields influence the body.
1: Thank you, Brad. Uh, Ken Foster, please uh, let the audience know who you are.
3: Hi, I'm Ken Foster, a Professor Emeritus of Bioengineering at the University of Pennsylvania. I've been involved in this field in one way or another since 1971 when I got my PhD in physics. I initially worked for several years in the US Navy Medical Research Institute on biological effects of radiofrequency fields. And I, after moving to the University of Pennsylvania, I've been involved in one way or another this field ever since then. I'm a uh, wife fellow of the IEEE registered professional engineer, published many papers on various topics.
1: Thank you, Ken. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Bushberg.
4: Yes, uh, hi, David. Uh, I'm Jerry Bushberg. I'm a clinical professor of radiology and radiation oncology at the University of California Davis School of Medicine. Um, I also serve as the uh, vice mm-hmm. chair of COMAR with the IEEE and the engineering and medicine. Society uh, Committee, which deals with uh, helping to explain otherwise very complex, uh, some often controversial issues regarding uh, RF uh, energy. Um, uh, Because of my academic uh, appointment, I have to uh, make sure that I I state that the statements that I make today are based on my own expert uh, evaluation and opinions and don't necessarily represent the views of the University of California or any other Organization
1: that I am affiliated with. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate you all being here. So, I'm going to do a quick uh, open comments and then we're just going to go right into the questions. So, uh, certainly, wireless connectivity has changed our world. It, it's changed how we connect with information and each other. Uh, and this uh, use of the wireless network has uh, placed a lot of pressure to deliver higher performance in order to uh, create that level of performance the operators and carriers have had to densify their networks uh, adding facilities uh, towers and and, uh, small facilities closer to population centers unfortunately this uh, placing of equipment near population centers has led to concerns from residents about electromagnetic fields rf uh, energy which are emitted from these sites in order to perform their functions And those residents uh, tend to show up in local governments uh, and agencies uh, demanding that projects be delayed or even halted. Um, So despite the fact that our our population clearly has voted with their dollars to use wireless technology, there's an increasing outcry about the mechanism by which it is delivered to the population. Um, Some countries, uh, in an effort to accommodate these concerns, have adopted precautionary guidelines that are above and beyond what the um core science and the the core standards such as the IEEE c95.1 recommend um so but without reference to any particular science or medical evidence some local governments have actually enacted ordinances which explicitly or implicitly prohibit technologies such as 5G um, or networks um that use millimeter wave um frequencies Others have enacted distance limits, uh, basically excluding around population centers, whether it's schools or residences, uh, without regard to the amount of power that the sites actually put out. And so this, all of this really sets up a problematic situation, which is, is that clearly there's a lot of people that want to use this network. Um, the ordinances and codes of the way that this is implemented at the local level is um, being driven by perception as opposed to science uh, and opposed to, um, you know, clearly defined mechanisms that are based in standards and and reviewed, uh, high quality reviewed material. And so if we uh, can't get past this, then it's gonna be very hard to deliver these to the people who want these networks. Uh, and certainly we've even seen some criticism in the industry that, you know, the 5G network is not rolling out fast enough, um, but I, I would argue that Based upon my experience, this is because these are hard to get done uh, just because of local issues. So let's let's start by level setting this. And I'm just going to throw the question out um, to the panelists in, in no particular order. First of all, let's discuss what is new about 5G. And the reason I asked that is, is because uh, you know, 140 years ago, people were afraid of electricity because it was new. Um, as new technologies come on the market, they tend to generate concerns. So historically, we've had fears about everything from Wi-Fi to electric blankets to, you know, blue LED light bulbs. Um, what is it about, I mean, what's new about 5G and, and why do we think, the, as a, well, why does the panel think that 5G is causing concern? I'm going to ask Ken Foster to address that question to start.
3: Well, first of all, 5G is simply a a different technology for wireless communication it's not a different physical property it's in fact an evolution of 4g using similar technologies Uh, the main differences are first of all it provides the users with a much broader bandwidth so they can transmit more data more quickly it uses different uh, frequency bands two of which are very close to similar to existing cell bands, one of which is close to the millimeter wave at higher frequencies. It it allows much faster transmission of data, more efficiently than existing cell phone technologies. But as a result, it's going to require more base stations than existing technologies that accounts for many of these small cells that are located in the cities. Um, So it's... um, The exposure characteristics at the two lower bands are similar to those of of existing cell phone networks, perhaps even a bit lower. The exposure characteristics at millimeter band are also similar to those um, quite low compared to the existing uh, standards, but in a different frequency range than, than presently used. So I think the answer is just not much different.
1: Thank you. Um, Brad, do you want to offer a comment?
2: Well, there isn't a lot different, but one thing that as you go up in the frequency range, you tend to have a difference in penetration depth. Um, Sometimes electromagnetic fields at lower frequencies can penetrate the body more easily. As you go up higher, um, they can't penetrate as easily. So in some ways, um, you don't have as many problems with real deep parts of your body being stimulated at these much higher frequencies because the electromagnetic waves just can't get in there yeah
4: you know, i'd also mention that uh, you know these are beam-forming antennas uh that are directing the energy in a relatively tight beam to the user who is requesting service and unlike previous generations where um rf bills were uh basically out there in a particular sector and if you were had a device and could connect that energy was there most of the time whether there was a user or not in this particular case uh, if you were an AT&T customer for example and you were walking by a Verizon uh, cell site the the exposure uh, the only exposure would be from the scanning beam which is a very small part of the total energy and uh, maximum or the typical exposure would not occur because the cell side would not be sending the signal to you because you're not a customer of theirs. Uh, so it's really quite selective. And, and in many cases, I think it reduces exposure to uh, areas where these sites are deployed.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I tend to agree with, uh, uh, with all of your comments here. The, um, the thing that I, I see happening, which I think is con- of concern, is that people are, are lumping in 5G with millimeter wave which which is new to cellular um but, but for example if you were to deploy a 5g radio in the in the old 850 megahertz you know 1g band it, it's there's nothing particular about 5g that's different it doesn't automatically create some some new health issue because you're modulating that frequency with a different information um and, and i think that people are conflating 5g with with millimeter wave which which is new to uh to the cellular usage so um so really i think what we're talking about here today is is actually the question of the safety of rf energy um and its health effects on on humans and animals so let's let's pivot to that so we often hear, uh, especially in, in community hearings or appeals, we hear about various studies. Um, you know, there's there's the Brimahzini study, there's the, the Na- National Institutes of Health uh, National Toxicology Project, what we what's often referred to as the rodent study. Um, there are others that have been set forth. Um, many groups cite these as as showing evidence of concern and that there should be constraints. Um, but let's talk about in general how these cited studies fit in with the overall body of evidence around this topic. How much study has been done on this topic? How many years have have we been looking at this question? Uh, Ken mentioned that he's been doing this since 1971. I know it actually dates back to the 50s, Um, but what's our best understanding of science regarding um, RF safety? And I'm gonna ask Dr. Bushberg to start off.
4: Yeah, well, I think sort of an overarching uh, issue, which is very important to understand, is, is the complexity of research in this particular area, because not only does it involve the typical kinds of, uh, and for example, animal assays or cells, the typical kinds of biological assays that many biologists and people that work in toxicology are familiar with. But what they typically aren't familiar with and what's really quite uh, new and leads to sometimes uh, some erroneous uh, publications is the engineering part, where they expose either the animals or the cells. and. Um, without appropriate and pretty significantly detailed analysis of the potential exposures. Um, There have been many examples where the exposures reported in the literature turned out to be many, many times uh, lower than the actual exposures due to misinformation about uh, how the RF energy would interact with particular uh, cell samples. So um, I would just start by saying that the literature is messy in this regard. there's a lot of uh, literature that is not as high quality as you would like to see, and uh, that, together with the uh, nature of the predatory journals that uh, allow you to publish even a flat Earth paper if you wish, if you pay the fee, um, you know, creates a, a problem for someone just searching on the internet. Um, so I think that's sort of an overarching uh, issue. But uh, you know, we have been studying biological effects of non-ionizing uh, radiation. Uh, uh, for over, what is it, maybe 60 plus years now. Uh, but I would say that, I would characterize it by saying that that the uh, research in the past uh, several decades is of much higher quality in most cases than, than the prior um, uh, publications. Although there are many excellent publications in the most prior, but there was also, I think, uh, less quality control with regard to the engineering and, and uh, that has been uh, improved to some degree.
1: Good. Um, Brad, do you want to offer a comment? And then we'll go to Ken.
2: Well, I think there's really four types of uh, evidence that we're looking at. There's brain cancer trends and and brain cancer uh, incidence has been flat, although cell phone use has skyrocketed. There is epidemiological studies. And although there are some questions in early studies, most of the epidemiological uh, analysis looks like there's not a large effect. There's theoretical analysis of possible mechanisms, and there's no support for a lot of these mechanisms of the biological effects from theoretical support. And the last issue is the experimental laboratory studies, and that's where you get the big mixed bag of results. So I think as long as we have this uh, confusion and, and inconsistent results in the laboratory experiments on cells and on animals, um, it's going to continue to be controversial.
4: Now, you mentioned the epidemiological studies, and those are not free from uh, uh, compounding variables as well. In fact, epidemiology in and of itself, you know, studies the organism of interest, which is great, right? It's evaluating human exposures and, and disease and causation. But um, as many of you know, but some may not, uh, you know, this is uh, particularly a problematic area of, of epidemiology in RF because, uh, for example, um, ascertaining what uh, definition of exposure and uh, determining what person's exposure to to, to wireless communication frequencies and uh, different modulations and intensities over a given period of time and epidemiology spans decades. Um, and asking people to recall, for example, uh, how much uh, they use their cell phone or on what side of the head, uh, uh, especially if they are infirmed or have brain cancer, um, you know, and have undergoing treatment. So the mental acuity may not be as great as it used to be. Uh, these present not, uh, insignificant, um, uh, hurdles to, uh, providing high quality, uh, uh, epidemiology, the way you would, would otherwise
1: want to. Ken, you want to comment?
3: Well, not especially, um, I've been, when I first got into this field in 1971, working for the Navy, the main interest. Of the sponsors, the Navy in those days was occupational safety. Sure. Navy wound up with a lot of ships with huge radio frequency antennas and lots of sailors who have happened had to work close to them. And so the initial motivation for this work going back to the 50s was occupational safety. And that's still a factor for people who have to climb towers, work near antennas and so forth. And the hazards that were identified in those days, burns and what have you, really are the hazards that underlie the current exposure limits. And despite the fact that research over the years has shifted more and more towards environmental exposures from low level sources, those still are, are considered to be the dominant hazards that have to be protected against. I think part of the problem is that there have been, at this point, several thousand studies looking for biological effects of exposure with endpoints that vary tremendously in relevance to health and studies that vary tremendously in quality. And so the noise level in this literature is high and even experts themselves sometimes debate what the significance of many studies are. So it's not a simple matter to explain.
4: I agree with that. I think, you know, people sometimes say, well, this is the new cigarette, you know, and they thought cigarettes were safe. And so now we have this new thing and and we're gonna find out later that it's not safe. that analogy is is quite flawed. You know, I mean, even if you were to assume that the epidemiology was done in a pristine way and had no confounding variables, which in fact is not the case, when you look at the relative risks uh, associated with those studies that are positive, although there are many that are also negative, they're relatively low. These relative risks are in the area of two, three, four, five. If you look at uh, lung cancer and cigarette smoking, the classic studies done, done by Sir Richard Dahl et al, the uh, relative risk factors there are, are 15 20 and, and even higher uh, so the signal was dramatically uh, cleared and also uh, was a consistent evidence that all of the studies that were done over those periods of time only made uh, the connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer and other cancers uh, even more certain. Uh, so there wasn't this back and forth necessarily in the literature about whether or indeed uh, there was a correlation, and and later studies uh, uh, helped to uh, divine causation uh, of this particular agent.
1: I I agree with the, I agree with the comments. It's certainly, in, in my time in the U.S. military um, as an as a an, radio and radar, um, you know. Technician and working on those systems, we were uh, aggressively told to be very careful about this, and the, the issues that occurred during the post World War II era with with especially with radar were, were drilled into our heads. Um, I, I thought the comment about predatory journals was was really interesting because um, we get a lot of citations when I do hearings. Uh, they'll say, "Well, you know, here's this paper that shows blah." and it's it was on a government website it was it was listed on the um uh you know some federal website that aggregates papers well is was it a good study right was it um you know was it a well done it's it's like well it was and it sort of comes across as well it was on the internet and it's a government website so therefore it must be true um and and I think the public you know variably has the ability to to sort through all of this um but of course the internet makes everybody an expert so that's that's been a um, little bit unfortunate um, you know david
4: you, you raise it actually a very in, uh, important issue which is you know how is the public supposed to digest this information you know, right how are they, right how, you know who are they to turn to who are they to believe and and first of all you have to you know understand that there's no one publication uh, or individual that can opine with absolute certainty uh, and in fact uh, science uh, in and of itself is not a, an absolute domain with regard to truth you know we are always uh, are, there are always open questions and things that we continue to explore right. however if you're going to assess the biological effect of any physical or chemical agent what you need to do is to assemble a, a team of scientists that have the relevant expertise in all of the various disciplines, both in terms of toxicology as well as engineering, cancer biology, molecular genetics, and et cetera, to be able to evaluate the papers with regard to their quality. Uh, people that actually do this particular work maybe with other agents are 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 keenly expert in assessing whether or not the techniques and even the statistical analysis that was performed are appropriate for the particular paper that's being presented. And when you do what's referred to as a systematic review, where you set up the criteria by which you will accept papers of the highest quality or grade them, so from high to low, you find that uh, when these are done well, the number of actual papers that make it uh, are typically less than 10% of those that are
1: evaluated. Let me, let me double click on what you just said, because I think it's really important the process by which you describe is actually how the IEEE C95.1 standard is updated on a regular basis. Many times in hearings, we hear from opposition groups that, well, the FCC hasn't updated its guidance since since the uh, nineteen ninety six back when the the StarTAC was the dominant technology, right? The the one G flip phone, um, and and so, I think what you said is really important, which is is that. All of this review and and this this expert body, this goes into the IEEE C95.1 standard, which is then used by agencies, including the FCC, to, to create their guidance. Is is that correct?
4: Well, I think all of the, you know, whether it's International Committee on Non-Animation Radiation Protection or ICNIRP, as it's most commonly referred to, or, or the, of the other really dozens and dozens of those of uh, scientific councils that have been assembled to review the literature all do that same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Some do it better than others, but in general, they're looking to first assess uh, the quality of the of the literature sure. in that area so that they are making decisions on those papers, which uh, have the highest confidence in uh, providing a good connection between the evidence that's presented and the conclusions that are drawn. Yeah.
3: If I did jump in, I could point out that there are some scientists out there who would vehemently disagree with everything we're saying, who are absolutely convinced that radio waves, even at very low levels, such as from Wi Fi, are, are very dangerous. And I've spent a lot of time trying to understand their arguments. And the best I can, can come up with is that they're looking at the same body of data from a different perspective. Uh, health agencies generally, in fact, uniformly, haven't expressed any concern about hazards from ordinary environmental level exposures. Because that's because they do basically like Jerry has been talking about. They review the literature with to quality and try to put everything together and see what comes out. And the answer is not much comes out consistently. You can take different point of view by going through each study that claims an effect. And maybe half of all bioeffect effect studies do claim some kind of effect. And then sort of cherry pick and wave your hands and, and come up with a story that, that tell the public that the world is coming to an end in fact i know one professor who's actually making those statements to the public that 5g will create an end to human civilization within a few years it might happen but probably not because of 5g
4: yeah and there's an important distinction between you know when you run a uh, study especially in the laboratory uh, you know between observing an effect and the fact that it's potentially harmful to human health uh, many things uh, uh, when tested in these kinds of uh, experiments um, uh, cause some sort of physiological or cellular mechanical change but you know the human body and all animals have uh, very robust adaptive responses you know when we when we take in food and convert it to um, to the cellular energy atp there is a, a very hostile biochemical process uh, known as oxidative phosphorylation, that takes food and turns it into energy, during which there are are dozens and dozens of changes in uh, in metabolites and cellular uh, homeostasis that are dealt with by the body very effectively. And so just because you can demonstrate a change in an isolated cell or in an animal doesn't mean that that necessarily would lead to an adverse health effect in humans.
1: It, it's interesting you talk about the body's adaptation to this because um, Brad, you wrote a book on mm-hmm. this topic. and and one of the things I remember from your book was you talked about how the induced fields from RF energy relative to the electrical fields which already exist in the human body, from cellular processes and nervous processes, are mm-hmm. that the the human body's fields are so much larger, that, that this is an insignificant amount of energy relative to the, to the simple operation of the human body. Do you wanna make a comment on that?
2: Yeah, that's true. Um, there's not a whole lot of radio frequency energy that, that the body's producing, but a lot of the ideas of, of mechanisms of how the electric, uh, radio frequency uh, energy couples to the body assumes that the radio frequency energy is is modulated, just like an uh, AM radio, the amplitude modulate. And if you can demodulate it, you can get down to where you're now operating at more kilohertz type frequencies. And that's where you have electric fields from the heart, electric fields from the nerve, all fairly large electric fields already existing in the body. And you'd have to have uh, as well as thermal fields at, at any frequency. And you really have to be careful if you're dealing with really weak field effects. It's going to be swamped by endogenous fields in your body.
1: And Christopher Cobden Davis from University of Maryland did some interesting research on this topic, where he he showed that the human body could not demodulate. And I'm using I'm slipping a little bit in engineering here. But okay. the idea that the human body could respond to the information that's carried. On, and so this really gets to this question of, like, are we concerned about 5G itself, like, as a modulation method? Is there something about the waveforms which are problematic? Or are we simply talking about the photonic energy that dissipates in the human body? And, and Dr. Davis's work, I think, was very clear on this topic, that anything that dissipates in the human body is going to be uh, resistive effects, meaning that it's, it's heat. And that's what we have found to be the impact from RF energy, the one proven thing from RF um, energy has been that the body will subjected to enough energy will heat up. But then again, when I go outside on a cold morning and stand in the sun and drink my coffee, I'm, I'm absorbing photons and, and doing, and, and that's where the heat comes from, um, comes from that big uh, electromagnetic generator that, that we orbit called the sun. Um, there is I think that one of the things that it gets to that question of sort of scale of, of uh, impact, and, and Dr. Foster, you uh, wrote an article in IEEE Spectrum a while back about this question of dose versus exposure. A lot of the citations that we hear in these, uh, in these hearings about concerns, uh, stuff that people pull off the internet or, or off of paper aggregation sites. Um, deals with this, well, you know, the the, NI, the NIH rodent study showed this, but I'm afraid of a cell site that's 200 feet away from my house. Um, obviously, the power levels are extremely different between those. Um, how, l- talk to us a little bit about dose versus exposure and, and how should people interpret a study that says that holding my phone to my head is problematic and how should they interpret that in the context of a cell site that that's some number of meters away from their home
3: well exposure technically means uh how much energy is incident on your body the, the intensity of the field um doses how much is absorbed um, what you're probably asking about is why is it that some sources produce much more exposure or much more dose than others it's it's been pretty well established that the major source of exposure to an average person from radio waves comes from when they use cell phones. Mm -hmm. Uh, Below that, there are many other sources, including base stations located outside the home, Wi-Fi, microwave ovens in the home, and so forth. And so the major source of exposure is from one's own use of cell phones. Uh, Mm -hmm. Followed
1: followed by Wi-Fi access points in the home, I would guess, right? That's probably like number two.
3: And many other sources. Hmm. Uh, when you use your microwave, you're bathing the entire home in, in very weak microwave hmm. energy, um, and, and so forth. Uh, so, in my mind, it's not too sensible to worry that exposure from base stations located 100 meters down the road when you use selfies, a cell phone. Yeah, I can fact-
4: to follow up on that. I think it's a really an important point, and and one of the things that's sort of counterintuitive that people don't. Uh, recognizes that you know the phones uh, have this uh, function called adaptive power control that, mm-hmm. that changes the output of the phone based on the strength of the signal from the cell side and the difference in potential exposure from the phone can range over two or maybe three orders of magnitude depending on the particular modulation uh, and in fact so, just- i'm sorry no oh, and i just wanted to, to make the point that that if you, if you really want to reduce the amount of exposure from your phone or from phones that are being used next to you, what you really need is good coverage and a network so that everybody has a, um, a right. good signal from the site and their phones are operating you know, at, at the lowest possible level. That would, I mean, if for just from a logical perspective, if you were concerned, uh, that would be a goal uh, that you would want to see achieved.
1: That's a really interesting point. Uh, Having worked on uh, as an RF engineer and a a company that developed handsets uh, at one point, I I have worked on adaptive power control, both on the receiver and the transmitter and the, um, the I mean, we, we know this and people experience this every day. Um, you know, how many times have you gone hiking um, and your phone, your battery dies for some reason? You wonder, well, why did my battery die? And the reason why was because you were out in the middle of nowhere and your phone jammed the power up because it couldn't contact the cell site. So when you're, when you're um, get when you have, you know, no bars or one bar, your phone will try to connect, which of course means that it's emitting more RF. And, and as Ken pointed out, Right, that that's the biggest exposure of RF in your life is that phone that you tend to carry in your hip pocket or or your breast pocket or on your belt. Um, so l- let's let's switch a little bit to um, away from this topic of of so obviously everybody has probably heard about this argument that that RF fields cause cancer. That was the thing that was many years ago was asserted um was this that it was carcinogenic but as um i believe it was brad pointed out the, the as our usage of wireless devices has increased exponentially um cancer rates are actually dropping right that they're 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 flat or dropping so the two are not correlated and and as as a lawyer would say uh, that which is correlated cannot be causal in other words if if cancer rates are not going up commensurate with the amount of usage of our rf devices then phones are not causing cancer i i tend to see that now the um a lot of the opposition groups come into the these hearings and they now they're claiming other effects um i've i've heard it uh, i've heard rf energy um blamed for autism in children i've heard it blamed for uh adhd in in uh, in children i've heard it uh, blamed for diabetes uh, headaches, nausea, anxiety—all these electromagnetic hypersensitivity effects that, that people tend to list off. And of course, there was that doctor out of San Francisco who uh, is no longer a doctor as the state of California removed his license. But in the early days of the pandemic, he claimed that five G caused COVID. Um, so let's let's talk about uh, let's talk about that. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, Ken. Uh, what what is your what is your take on this shift away from carcinogenic effects towards these these other effects uh, particularly um centered around these sort of non-specific health concerns that that might be classified under a under a lump term of electromagnetic hypersensitivity
3: okay well in the public the, the two major issues that keep on being discussed are possibly rf energy caused cancer and that's been pretty much um considered by health agencies the other one is What's called electrical hypersensitivity. People feel in some way that they have non specific responses to even low levels of radio waves in the environment. Uh, you could think of this in layperson's terms as being allergic to Wi Fi, for instance. This uh, issue became very big in Europe in the 1960s, 1950s, when people felt themselves uh, allergic to video display terminals, power lines, fluorescent light bulbs, and so forth. And then as the wireless revolution took place in the 1990s through through 2000s, uh, people developed what they thought was a sensitivity to radio waves. The problem is that there have been many studies trying to determine under blinded conditions whether people actually can detect when they're exposed to radio waves. And the answer is that no one has been able to identify any clear-cut response that people have when they are exposed under blinded conditions. Nobody really knows the cause of this. The two dominant theories are it's maybe some sort of psychological response called the nocebo effect, where the people themselves are absolutely adamant that this is a uh, physiological response to these fields. The problem is that the fields that they think that they're responding to are exceedingly low. Uh, one man sued his neighbor because he thought his Wi-Fi s- uh, system was... Was making them ill, and if you're going to try to set exposure limits to protect against that kind of exposure, you might as well just turn off the whole radio spectrum.
4: But unless that that it's not, you know, it's not unique just to RF either. There are, you know, a number of cases where people uh, believe that uh, the 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 cause of their maladies is due to not just RF, but but any number of potential uh, things in the environment or. Uh, the chemical plant down the road, or the um, uh, amount of uh, um, asbestos uh, that uh, might be lingering in a building—that uh, uh, sort of thing—and um, so the, these correlations, uh, not necessarily causations, are uh, are not that is not a new phenomenon. Uh, also, I think it's important to understand that these people do suffer. I mean. The, there's not, they're not making this up. I mean, they're really impacted uh, by whatever it is that is causing the symptoms that they're experiencing. It just doesn't appear to be uh, in, in controlled experiments due to uh, whether the exposure is from uh, radio frequency energy uh, or not. And David, one other thing I wanted to go back and just clarify when you talking about cancer because I think we have to be very careful you know what we say in this regard you know the certain cancers have been increasing over over the years uh, and others have been decreasing and so when we're talking about um, RF and cell phones I think we want to stick with you know specifically those that have been indicated or implicated like the uh, glioma uh, for example and if you look at that particular cancer you know between the 19 early 1970s and uh, Mid 1980s, there was a significant increase in the incidence of uh, gliomas. Uh, now, that was before the cell phone era, uh, and it was largely due to the introduction of uh, of um, MRI, RCT, and and uh, the its widespread use in medicine, which was increasing the incidence. Of identifying these tumors and in individuals, but if you look after that, uh, during uh, the period uh, when you know there was uh, over now more than 100% penetration in most countries where most people own cell phones, and follow from that period, there's been a slight decrease in gliomas overall. Now, individuals have taken very, very small slices of very, very small segments of some country and shown an increase. But when you look at the totality of the evidence, uh, it doesn't increase. Doesn't suggest that there's an increase in, in gliomas over the period of which cell phones have been appropriated.
1: Thank you, Brad. Do you want to comment?
2: Well, just I think going back to something you said right at the start of this um, <clears throat> event is that historically, electric and magnetic fields have been identified as health hazards, going all the way back to Mesmer and animal magnetism that Ben Franklin's helped debunk. The 60 hertz power line was huge 30 years ago, and and magnets, wearing a magnets in your shoe to alleviate pain, and and you have to forgive us some people like myself who have been involved in and in watched these things. there's just a temptation to say, you know, you know, here we go again when we when we hear 5G now as proposed yeah. to be these uh, health effects. And yeah, I think Brad,
4: yeah. you know, it's important to understand that when you know, give, give magnets as an example that you raised. You know, there are people will swear by those that say, yeah. you know, when I wear these, my arthritis is better, my, uh, you know, whatever condition they're trying. to And, and, and there's no doubt that the that placebo effect doesn't mean that it isn't real. Yeah. Placebo effect just means that, that it is experienced by the user, but not necessarily related uh, in a scientific way or a cause and effect way by the the instrument or the drug that, that is being taken. But your body is, is and and from a, a, a neurobiological point of view, is a very powerful instrument and a strong belief that A causes B can, and the symptom B can cause symptom B to appear even in the absence of a, a direct causation, just from the neurophysiological connections that are very robust in our bodies and and are able to produce a wide variety of chemicals that have real effects.
3: Yeah. The problem though is that some of these people are affected to the point where they simply cannot live in modern society yeah. There are people who live in caves in France. To get away from electromagnetic fields, or they move to a small town in West Virginia where there's a space mm-hmm. telescope that doesn't allow cell phone services. So these yeah. people are seriously suffering. And the yeah. problem is that there's no clear way of treating them. And there are all sorts of people out there who are taking advantage of them by selling them literally tinfoil hats and so forth. Right. And so these people are not being well treated by society. There should be some clinical trials to find ways to effectively address their concerns. If not, treat their, their disease.
4: Yeah, Ken brings up another part of this problem, which is uh, the entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, that take uh, that self-fear as a uh, as a commodity. Uh, right. And it's a pretty good business model. You know, fear sells yeah. uh, and uh, the devices that they suggest are either not effective or can actually result in higher exposures, as we experienced. Right. With right. Some of those cell phone covers in the early days right. awesome. Cause the cell phones to need to transmit at higher levels to make the yes. connection. So uh, there, it's not a uh, there, there, there are no there's not a it's not a uh, innocent endeavor. Uh, it causes harm both uh, uh, psychologically uh, to people and provides very little benefit.
1: Yeah, it's it's that's a really good point. It's unfortunate. Uh, there's this huge industry around this topic, and um, many times in these hearings that. Um, you know that, that we that we support um, will have people come in who will be accredited by uh, various organizations or or you know uh, what appear to be institutes of, of higher learning that are actually led by their their board of directors or or their board of advisors um, engage in a robust business uh, selling all kinds of snake oil. Um, about as you pointed out like you know cell phone cases that that protect you from rf i've i've seen you know dirty electricity filters as another one i'm not sure how electricity gets dirty but um uh wi-fi access points that are claimed to be somehow safer than regular access points and of course cost four times as much um you know there's a variety of um of things i i remember um People at one hearing were talking about how they, they were wearing uh, pendants which are made of a material that's, uh, I think it's called shungite, which is this basically carbon. It's, but it's actually radioactive. So if you if you pass a Geiger counter over a, a shungite pendant, it, w- it will set it off because it's actually radioactive. So it, because they were afraid of Wi-Fi that was operating in the building, they put on something that was actually radioactive. <laughs> Um, because of the because of the the kind of the pseudoscience woo around this that they believed was was going to make them because it was engraved in some sort of a mandala that was going to somehow or another deflect the RF fields and and that's that's really unfortunate because people are spending an enormous amount of money on this um, rather than you know addressing the core problem which is perhaps psychological or, or other mechanisms
4: you know and, and to that point you know another area that this falls into is when people purchase RF detection instruments off the internet or from right. eBay. Yeah, sure. And sure. some of them are just, just extraordinarily sensitive to yes. any electric field, whether it's uh, an RF uh, uh, field or not. Uh, and, and they have just painted on the dials, uh, you know, a green for okay and red for really bad or hazardous and, you know, holding it up to virtually anything uh, that produces an electric field. I know it of right. how small will cause the needle to go into the red uh, but These are not scientific yep. instruments, um, and yep. uh, you know do not have the kinds of calibration and and right. and, and units or or reporting that are uh, can be used in any way to assess the relative hazards of yeah. Uh, exposure.
1: Yeah, we had, we had one of those show up in a hearing recently where somebody said that their their safe or, uh, their their particular brand, uh, forget the name of it, was, you know, that it showed these huge numbers and. Um, you know, re- relative to the twelve thousand dollar NIST calibrated instrument that I use in my work, right? There's there's a, a <laughs> several orders of magnitude of, of accuracy that 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 twelve thousand dollars affords you, um, and uh, just having some sort of diode detector is not is not the way. But people believe that this is true. I, I, as I recall, I think you could even some years ago, you could even go into Home Depot and buy buy one of these devices for you a know, hundred dollars.
4: And David, even if you buy even if you shell out the $12,000 for the appropriate instrument, you need to know how to use you it. You have to understand how to use it, That's exactly right. Uh, because yes. you can get spurious readings for, from a number of, yes. of uh, apparent conditions if you're not really understanding the technology and, yes. and the ways to avoid uh, those kinds of spurious uh, readings.
1: Right. Um we are a couple we're probably about 13 minutes away from the top of the hour and I know that we're going to have um we're going to have to do the wrap on this. So I would like to begin talking uh, to some of these questions which are uh, in the chat. And so um one question came in from uh, Marie uh, Smurman who asked about Havana syndrome and I um I'd asked uh, the IEEE host to post a link to Ken's um, presentation on this topic. So, uh, as you you had um, noted this, um, so Marie, um, if you want to go, I don't know if you're a Twitter user, but if you want to go to at K Foster U Penn P E N N, um, that would be a way for you to get access because it's the uh, it's a pinned tweet in. In Ken's, um, in Ken's Twitter feed. So if, if you are on Twitter and you want to try to access his Havana paper, then that would be a way to answer that question. I think it's a bit beyond the scope of what we're talking about here. Um, another question had come in from Alan Jones, and he, he had asked the question, if I stand one meter from a five gigahertz Wi-Fi router, would the field strength be greater than from a typical 5G base station situated perhaps 10 meters away um and he says because people are concerned about field strength and not realizing that wi-fi may actually be a a stronger signal and and i think it's hard to answer that question um alan because a typical 5g base station is is for (laughs) unfortunately is not typical um we it depends upon what we're we're discussing are we talking about a a macro site Are we talking about a building mount um a building mount macro are we talking about a small cell a micro cell um and which frequency is it operating at because of course the um the strength of rf fields dissipates as both the square of the distance from the source as well as the square of the inverse square i should say of the source and the distance or the inverse square of the frequency so if we're saying a 5g uh site that's operating in the 700 megahertz band would have a very different propagation characteristic from the um, from the dissipation that would occur at say 28 gigahertz in the millimeter wave. So, but it, David,
4: I think what we can say is that under any of those conditions that were described, the amount of exposures would be exceedingly small and yeah. represent maybe you know a thousand times or a hundred times less than the standards would allow for continuous public exposure.
1: And
4: that's I think the way to um, maybe a way to characterize it uh, is that okay. they're, they're both low. How they would compare is may you not know, be that important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 that's a very good point, Dr. Brishberger. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, you know, in, in the work that we do when we go out, I mean, we, we get asked to go out and do field analysis quite often. Um, and when I, when I go out, um, often it's, you know, the numbers are like sub 1% for the, the exposure level that, that is defined by, by the standards and by the safety guidance. Um, you know, most of the time, it's it's certainly nowhere near anything, even double, double digits. It's probably often less than 1%, even when, when you're rather close to the source. And that's just because the, the RF fields fall off very quickly as you move away.
3: Yeah, Wi-Fi is a pulse signal with extremely low duty cycle, so the time average exposure is very low, Mm -hmm. while that from a base station is pretty much on all the time. From a psychological point of view, the exposure to a base station radiation is involuntary, while that from Wi-Fi is strictly voluntary. So there are psychological differences, too. So from a public perception of risk, these are very different exposures, even though numerically, in some respects, they may be comparable.
1: That that's a very good point, which is is that people do make the assertion in, in many of these hearings um, that um, you know they have no control over this and they feel like it's being being forced upon them um, as as rather as, as they could make a choice to turn off a Wi-Fi access point or turn their phone off if they if they had concerns and so there is a certain amount of um, Sort of intrusion, if you will, into their lives, right?
4: But David, I would suggest that, you know, you have to look at these issues from a holistic uh, perspective and from a community public health and safety perspective, you know, uh, the number of lives saved, the number of uh, people who lived rather than died from automobile accidents because of wireless technology and the ability to summon aid uh, quickly or to provide care from a physician remotely uh, there. This is not a statistical uh, analysis that there's a debate about. Um, you know, the vast majority of 911 calls now come in through wireless uh, communication, and um, the public benefit. If you set the economic benefits aside, the public benefits and, and health and safety are are undeniable and demonstrable. Uh, and you compare this to uh, the possibility of some risk at, at very low levels that is sure. yet to be. Uh, 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 identified
1: right. Um, so, turning to a question from uh, Story Pellicero, who who uh, works in citing, and she asked the question, "What arguments or statements have you found to be most persuasive or resonate the most with local governments and residents?" Um, I I think, Story, the the answer to that is is that um, it depends. It de- it honestly it depends upon the jurisdiction um, that I'm. That i'm dealing with and i'm sure dr bushberg uh, brad ken you've all you've all done work in this area you you would probably agree with me that it really depends upon what the concern is and then you would have to address that so understanding the um the jurisdiction and and then coming up with um logical and and science-based responses to that is is really the the core of the work that is done in this area which is you know, which is why people such as yourself uh, ask people like us to come in and help with this because we are uh, we do immerse ourselves in this topic and we're, we're able to pull out um, that evidence, which is necessary to deal with some of these um, recognition right. of pseudoscience. But um, interest, of course, Ken, go ahead.
3: Um, I'm a registered professional engineer and sometimes do um, assessments of compliance with proposed transmitters with FCC exposure limits. I haven't done that in the last couple of years, but I've done that in the past. And I've made many public presentations and I've discovered Hmm. the worst thing to do is to say, I'm an engineer, here's the science. Hmm. Uh, It's much better to say that these issues have been studied many times by health agencies from the World Health Organization down through many national uh, health groups. And here's what they invariably find And there's no clear evidence of the harm. But you don't want to say uh, to opine about uh, scientific issues, nor do you want the engineers for the site acquisition companies to stand up and say, I'm an engineer. Here's what the Mm -hmm. truth is.
4: yeah. Somewhere, I think, in the middle, if you're asked a very specific technical question, of course, you need to respond to that. But uh, but you cannot uh, debate the science in those kinds of forums. It's not only not uh, practical, it's not appropriate because there are people yeah. with necessary uh, knowledge to opine on whether certain evidence is credible or not or not present to provide the necessary uh, uh, perspective. So, I think you have to back it out to more, much more general uh, sorts of issues. Ken mentioned one of them being the fact that there have been many institutions uh, and countries that have selected scientists from their various universities to opine on this topic and have come to essentially the same conclusions. Mm -hmm. And then I would add uh, the fact that the item that I mentioned about the positive societal benefits of. wireless technology. And I think these are are concepts that uh, resonate more clearly with the public uh, than any uh, in-depth scientific debate on a particular issue.
3: Yeah. I generally tell the public that people can choose what they worry about. And if they want to worry about RF fields based upon some activist uh, statements, that is their prerogative. From the point of view of setting public policy, you're better off choosing to put weight in the World Health Organization, um, National Cancer Institute, Food and Drug Administration, or even just pay attention to the legal Mm -hmm. constraints and um, simply not try to get in over your head and analyzing this very complicated scientific issue when when these have already been been well uh, discussed by health agencies.
4: You let me just add one point to that, and, and, and this ties in directly to what has been said previously, you know, I explained to people that when my kids were young, uh, you know, we, we had a baby monitor so that my wife, who was down the downstairs, could hear the baby cries, although with my kids, you could hear them without a baby monitor, you really didn't need that amplification. but, oh, but she off. felt more comfortable with that. And so, you know, knowing my area of expertise, she asked me, you know, if I thought it was uh, okay, you know, and I said, well, yeah, I measured the levels and they were very, very low and, and said that, uh, you know, she feels more comfortable uh, with that, having that uh, ability to listen in. Uh, there's no. So I made a personal choice based on my own scientific understanding of the issues and my concern for my own family. So. I think if you can add any personal anecdotal information that that relates directly to decisions that you've made, sometimes that's helpful, helpful in placing things in your perspective.
1: And I think it's a question. Uh, there is that question of relative risk, and I see Brad has come on, which which is the signal that it is time to wrap up. I'll, I'll close out by saying that um, you know a lot of these things are are questions of relative risk., um, you know, if I go to a hearing and there's a lot of people there, um, sometimes I will ask the question, how many of you drove here today? Uh, how many how many of you um, you know how many of you um, rode your bicycle? I mean the the re- The reality is is that there's like a one in one hundred chance in the course of our lifetime that we will be in an automobile accident. it's It's being in a car accident, being being in a bicycle accident is is a far more likely, Event, uh, an adverse event in your life over the course of the years that you're there, um, you know, out driving around, versus say, you know, some random exposure to to an RF field is going to cause a health effect. So we we have to, I, I think we have to say that we we accept a certain level of risk in our lives, just simply getting out of bed and and getting in and walking to the bathroom, um, but but we don't think about that because it's a normal thing for us. Brad, I'm gonna um, before I'm gonna turn it back to you, uh, panelists. Thank you so much for being here. It was great. Uh, always appreciate having a conversation with you folks, um, and glad to do it in front of an audience. Uh, and really appreciate the IEEE being willing to to host us for this. Um, you know, you're welcome to reach out to any of us on social media if you have follow-ups or you know you want to engage with us, any of us directly. Um, Brad, why don't you uh, play us off?
0: Uh, Thank thanks you. very much, David, and, uh, and thanks as well to uh, the panelists from me. Having your expertise on this topic is greatly appreciated. Um, I'm sure the audience agrees. Um, and thanks to the audience as well for tuning in. Uh, if you want to join our next um, episode of this 5G Demystified series, uh, just look in the description field of this event. Uh, you'll find a link. Uh, the next one is going to be called Will 5G Kill Wi-Fi? Uh, It will go live here on LinkedIn on December 15th at 12 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, And to learn more about 5G and how it could transform industry and society, please visit uh, the Future Networks initiative online at futurenetworks.ieee.org. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks all. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay.